If you have your Bibles, turn to Proverbs chapter 1. We're diving into a brand new series tonight uh, called The Way of Wisdom. We're going to be there for the next uh, three months, and I'm excited to dive in together. I'm going to start with a question. Is there a difference between knowledge and wisdom? Yeah, I would say there is. Sounds like half of you agreed with me. The other half were silent. I would say absolutely. And when we think about the difference between knowledge and wisdom, it leads to a, a funny question. Have you ever known someone who's really smart that's done something really stupid? Well, that's actually a question that was uh, posed on a Reddit thread that got 12,000 responses. Don't worry, I didn't read all 12,000, but I did want to share a couple of my favorites. I think these are true. I don't know. Everything on Reddit must be true, right? (laughs) My sister is very intelligent. I'm not talking about my sister. This is just a random person on the internet. I just want to be clear. My sister is very intelligent and educated. They had their house inspected, and the inspector found an issue with their gas heat. She called in a repairman, and it turns out that they were having low levels of carbon, carbon monoxide leaking into their home. When my mom asked her why she didn't have several working carbon monoxide detectors in the house, she answered, I did have one, but it just wouldn't stop beeping. (laughs) Maggie, you are much wiser than that. My friend has a master's degree in mechanical engineering and robotics. (laughs) He once, once made a potato salad with raw potatoes because he thought, since it's a salad, you're not supposed to cook it. Or how about this? Uh, my friend's brother was a high school Val Victorian. In college, he gathered up deer poop to play a practical joke on his roommate by putting the turds in a box of Cocoa Puffs. Two days later, you know where this is going, he forgot about the joke and poured himself a bowl of Cocoa Puffs. And that was my annual salute to junior high ministry. There's my junior high joke. Here's the last one. I did my undergrad with a guy who got an almost perfect score on his MCAT. That's not an easy thing to do. But (laughs) he also ate a raw chicken breast once because he thought it was just a really bad Hot Pocket. (laughs) That's what I, uh, how's, how? There is certainly a difference between knowledge and wisdom. In simplest terms, wisdom is knowledge applied. But my favorite definition of wisdom actually comes from uh, a scholar. His name is Grant Osborne. It's your first blanks uh, on your handout. Wisdom is living life in God's world by God's rules. I love that definition of wisdom. It fits right in with the Hebrew word for wisdom, hakmah. It's not just right thinking, but it's right thinking combined with right living, life experience applied. It's not just about knowing the right thing, but it's about knowing the right thing and doing the right thing. Wise thinking leads to wise living. See, if we just stop our search at knowledge and don't take the next step to wisdom, the effects, they could be detrimental. Knowledge is making a budget. Wisdom is following the budget. Knowledge, it's knowing that there's a real heaven and hell. Wisdom is communicating that in a loving way. 
with someone who doesn't yet know Christ. Knowledge is aware of the dangers of promiscuity, while wisdom stays as far away from the line as possible. Knowledge is knowing that friendship is important. Wisdom is meeting once a month with an accountability partner or a mentor, sharing the real details about our life for encouragement. The Pharisees, they had knowledge. The disciples, they had wisdom. Do you see the difference? So together, as we dive into Proverbs together, we are not looking for knowledge. We're looking for something we need. We need wisdom. So that's where we're going to start tonight in Proverbs chapter 1. For our introduction, we're just going to look at the first seven verses tonight. Follow along with me as I read. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing and righteousness, justice, justice and equity, to give prudence to the simple knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning. Let the one who understands him take guidance to understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and the riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Here it's a synonym of wisdom. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Well, to start, I just want to look at the first verse, verse 1. It says, the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. It attributes the authorship of this book to Solomon, which might surprise you. Many scholars, contemporary scholars, actually doubt that Solomon was the author of this book. But verse 1 kind of says that he was the author. So what in the world do we do with that? Well, without diving into the scholarly debate, here's the conclusion that I've come to, and this will kind of form the foundation for um, our study and how we talk about Solomon. I believe that Solomon, um, that the Proverbs rather find their origin in Solomon, but probably some compilers, some narrators, a couple hundred years later, put together um, Proverbs that were from Solomon, and they, they put them together in the book of Proverbs. Actually, the book of Proverbs tells us that occurred. Proverbs 25 verse 1 says this, These also are the Proverbs of Solomon, which the men of Hezekiah, king of Judah, copied. So there's actually a 300-year gap between Solomon and King Hezekiah. So I believe what happened was Solomon is, is the origin. We'll talk about him as the author of Proverbs. And then over the next couple of centuries, men of Israel, wise men of Israel, they took his sayings and they compiled them into what we call the book of Proverbs. So I believe that God used both Solomon and the compilers to create the exact book of Proverbs that God intended, the inspired book that we have in Scripture uh, today. So that's a little bit of the background. But if, if Solomon is the origin, which I believe that he is, we've got to learn a little bit about Solomon and where the foundation of wisdom came from in Solomon's life. So turn over with me to 1 Kings chapter 3. It's going to be a little bit to the left. Solomon is a bit of a complicated character in the Old Testament. Solomon is King David's son. He reigned on 40, for 40 years on the throne in Jerusalem following his father David. And we learn a little bit about the foundation of his wisdom in 1 Kings 3. Let me start in verse 5. 1 Kings 3, verse 5. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night. And God said, ask what I shall give you. 
And Solomon said, you've shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, and in upright of heart toward you. And you've kept for him this great and steadfast love and given him a son to sit on his throne to this day. And now, O Lord, my God, you have made your servant king in place of David, my father, although I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or to come in, and your servant is in the midst of your people whom you've chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, so that I may discern between good and evil, for who is able to govern this your great people? Put yourself in Solomon's shoes. If the Lord appeared to you in a vision and said, ask whatever you want, I'll give it to you. What would you ask for? Now, I know after reading this account, we put our hand in the air and say, I'd be like Solomon. I'd ask, I'd ask for wisdom. Really? Is that really what you'd ask for? I don't know what I'd ask for, but I don't think I'm quite that wise. What sticks out to me in Solomon's response is his humility. He recognizes that he, he needs the Lord. He says, God, before you, I am but a little child. Was he actually a little child when this, this account occurred? No, he was actually probably in his, in his 20s. He was the age of most of you. Probably feels a little young to be king over an entire country, but he still wasn't a child. That statement is a, a way for Solomon to communicate his humility, his humble posture before the Lord, to say, Lord, I need you to guide me as I lead your people. But did you notice what he asked for? He asked for discernment to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. Where in the Bible do those two words appear together? Good and evil. Any idea? Genesis 2 and 3. We have the tree of life, but we also have the what? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I don't think that's accidental. Adam and Eve in the garden, they knew that the tree was there to make them wise. So they reached out, they grabbed, and they ate. They wanted to seek after a good thing, but on their terms. Solomon did the opposite. Solomon succeeded where Adam and Eve failed. He sought after wisdom, a good thing, but he did it not on his terms, on God's terms. And he said, God, I need wisdom to govern your people. That was the command in the garden, wasn't it? God placed Adam and Eve in the garden to rule, to reign with him. And here's Solomon, ruling and reigning over God's people, seeking for wisdom, a good thing, on God's terms. Solomon started very well, exceedingly well. Did he finish well? Probably not. Look at 1 Kings chapter 11. If you're still in 1 Kings 3, it's just a couple pages over to the right. 1 Kings 11. Starting in verse 1, I'll just read the first three verses. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your hearts after other gods. Solomon 
he clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. It's a good start. It's a bad finish. Solomon, he did what was common practice among kings in his day. Kings would marry the daughters of other kings as a way to make a treaty. Makes sense, doesn't it? If Solomon marries Pharaoh's daughter, Pharaoh's not going to come to attack Solomon's palace. Even though it was pragmatic, they, they pulled away Solomon's heart, and he began worshiping other gods. Now, if you go back to the Old Testament law, you go back to the book of Deuteronomy, God intended that his people never had a king. God wanted to rule over the Israelites as their king. It's called a theocracy. Yet God, in his sovereign foresight, he knew that the people of Israel someday would ask for a king. The first king was King Saul. And in Deuteronomy chapter 7, God provided some rules, some guidelines, some stipulations for kings. There were four guidelines for the kings that would come down the road, four things that they had to do. First, don't marry any foreign wives. Did Solomon pass or fail that test? Yeah, he married 700 of them, so we'll say that's a fail. The second was, don't build for yourself a large army, especially chariots from Egypt. Solomon, he built for himself a very large army, especially chariots from Egypt. Pass or fail? Another fail. And then number three, don't acquire for yourself great wealth. Uh, Did Solomon pass or fail? Well, considering that many believe today, in today's money, he was worth about $2 trillion, I would say that is probably a fail. And number four, the kings were required in Deuteronomy chapter seven to write for themselves their own copy of the Torah, their own copy of the first five books of the Old Testament and read from it every single day. We don't have one example of Solomon doing that in the book of first Kings. Not one. Doesn't mean he didn't do it, but we don't have an example of it. So we have three strikes and at best one foul ball. That's not a passing grade. Solomon started well, he finished poorly. So does that mean we take the book of Proverbs and we throw it out? Jake, I'm with you 100%. But it's a powerful juxtaposition. You can have wisdom, but you can fail to apply it. You can even start well, and you can finish poorly. Seeking God's wisdom is not a one-day one-time thing. Seeking God's wisdom is something that we do every single day for the rest of our life. Praying today, God, give me your wisdom, is a prayer that we should pray every single day so that we don't run the race so that in losing sight of the prize, becoming so arrogant that we think that we're above falling. Solomon reminds us that we need that humble posture to continually seek after the Lord and not think that we're above falling. Don't make the same mistake that Solomon made. There's a lot of wisdom that we can learn from him. So as we dive into Proverbs, there's a couple principles of of hermeneutics. That's just a fancy word for biblical interpretation. A couple fancy uh, rules of hermeneutics that we need to make sure we understand. So uh, we've talked about this in young adults. I would say that there's two the two most important rules of hermeneutics. The first would be what? Anybody remember? 
Context, and sometimes for emphasis, we say context, context, context. Okay, so that's the first one. Anyone know the second? Genre. Exactly. And you know genre. We're trained to read genre even beyond your high school English class. Anytime that we go on the internet, we know how to read genre. You're going to read a Facebook post far differently than you're going to read a news article, far differently than you're going to read a novel. We understand genre. And we look at scripture. Scripture is filled with a ton of different genres. We, we have law. We have epistle. We have poetry and psalms. Proverb is its own genre. And we have to know the rules that govern the genre of Proverbs so that we know how to interpret it, that we know how to read it. This is very important. If you don't catch what I'm about to say next, then the rest of our series isn't going to make sense. Proverbs are not promises. Proverbs are simple statements about life, life of wise living. Proverbs are generally true at least half the time. Proverbs, they're not promises. They're simple statements for wise living that are generally true at least half the time. So grab your Bible, go to Proverbs 26. I want to show you the the best example of how... uh, (laughs) of how we can use the context of Proverbs and understand it. So Proverbs 26, verses 4 and 5. Proverbs 26, 4 and 5. I'll give you a moment to, to find it. Follow along with me. It says this, verse 4. Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Verse 5, answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. You catch that? They're opposites. Verse 4 says, don't answer a fool according to his folly. And then verse 5 says, answer a fool according to his folly. It doesn't even make sense. See, if Proverbs are promises, or if they're even true 90% of the time, this is illogical. But think about it. There's moments where we're talking to someone who's foolish, and the best thing that we can do is to bite our tongue and walk the other direction, because we are not going to convince them. That's verse 5. There's other moments we'll be talking to someone who's foolish, and the best thing for us to do is engage with them in conversation and to expose the the fault in their argument. True wisdom is knowing when to apply verse 4 and when to apply verse 5. Proverbs aren't promises. They're simple statements for a wise life. In my study, I found the word fool or foolish in the book of Proverbs 71 times. We're going to see that word over and over again juxtaposed against wisdom, against a wise life. So we've got to understand what it means. Because for the author Proverbs, a fool doesn't mean the same thing as it means in our context, in our culture today. You and I use the word fool to describe someone who's unintelligent. A synonym would be stupid. That's what a fool means in our context. That's not at all what it means in the book of Proverbs. It had nothing to do with intelligence. It had nothing to do with knowledge. Instead, a fool was someone who lived my life in my world by my rules. See, if wisdom is living life in God's world by God's rules, a foolish person is someone who says, I don't want anything to do with that. I'm going to live my life in my world by my rules. Do you see the difference? It's nothing to do with knowledge. 
It has everything to do with surrender. The foolish person says, I'm going to be the king of my own life. But the wise person says, I'm going to let Jesus be king of my heart. That's the difference. We have to make sure that we understand that as we go through uh, the book of Proverbs. There's actually a, a pretty simple outline, generally, for the book. Chapters 1 through 9, they flow together really nicely. There's themes that compromise uh, entire paragraphs, or compose entire paragraphs, rather. And then once we get to chapter 10, everything's random. You'll read one verse, and the next verse will mean some, say something that is completely opposite. So if we study Proverbs, we teach through Proverbs, the first nine chapters, we can work through, maybe we'd say exegetically, we can teach a chapter, kind of what we're doing tonight, find a chunk, it flows well together. But once we get to chapter 10, you totally change your style. What you do is you search for any relevant proverb in a theme. Maybe we'll say the theme is friendship, for example. You find all the relevant proverbs on friendship, and then you create a, a big picture of what Proverbs says, wise life in terms of our relationships with one another. We're going to do both as we go through our, our study. Some are going to flow through those first nine chapters. It'll work in a linear way through the text, and then others will focus on a theme, and we'll bounce through uh, some of the Proverbs in the last two-thirds of the book. So after a 15-minute trip over the river and through the woods from verse 1, let's go back to Proverbs chapter 1. And I want to read the rest of our text because none of you even remember what it said after the last 15 minutes anyway. So verse 2, Proverbs 1, starting in verse 2. To know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning. And the one who understands, obtain guidance. To understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. The author outlines the purpose of the entire book of Proverbs. Do you want to know wisdom? then study this book? Do you want to receive instruction? Then follow this book. Are you willing to learn? Do you have a teachable spirit? Then study this book. The book of Proverbs has 31 chapters. I know some individuals who actually read a chapter in Proverbs every day for a month, because there's generally about 31 days in a month, and then they'll restart the next month, continually gleaning wisdom from the book of Proverbs. It's a great way for a wise life. But did you notice verse 4? He focuses on the youth. Now, you might hear that word and think youth belong in G180, and you're correct. But at the same time, your leaders will look at you tonight. Many of them have probably said this to you already, and they'll say something like, oh, you're so young, you have your whole life ahead of you. Heard that before? Now is the time to apply wisdom and the principles that we learned from Proverbs now is the time to seek after a wise life. If you make course corrections now, you could prevent years, decades of pain in your life. Seeking wisdom can set you on a trajectory now for the wise life and prevent wasted years. But the wise life is not an easy life. The way of wisdom is not a path of pleasure or a road of relaxation, but living life in God's world by God's rules is the only way to live a wise life. And that begins with humbly admitting that I have a lot to learn and that I must have a teachable spirit.
to receive wisdom. When you're confronted with a problem, where do you go first? Where do you go for wisdom? You know the name Rehoboam? Does that ring a bell? Solomon had a lot of kids, but one of his sons, Rehoboam, reigned on the throne after him. And not too long into his reign, the people came to Rehoboam and said, your father taxed us like this high. Can you just cut that in half? Rehoboam didn't know what to do, so he asked for advice. It's a good idea. The first group of people he went to were his father's advisors. Seasoned, wise, probably some gray hair in the group. They'd been around with Solomon. And he asked him, what do I do? And the advisor said, you should listen to him. Your dad did tax the people a lot. Win their trust now. And then Rehoboam decides to get his buddies together. He poses the same question to them and says, what do you think I should do? And his friends are like, don't be soft. You've got to be harder and more intense than your dad. Double down and tax the people even more. And who did Rehoboam listen to? His friends had a higher stock than the wise advisors. And the consequences were detrimental. Ten of the twelve tribes defected and formed their own kingdom. Where do we go first when we have a problem? Where do we go first when we need wisdom? It's tempting for you, for me, to ask for advice from someone who will tell us what we want to hear. And those are our friends. It doesn't mean that our friends always give bad advice. That's not what I'm saying. But there's wisdom in asking someone with a little more life experience than our peers when we encounter a problem. Because when we need wisdom, the first place we should go is the Lord, and we should ask Him for wisdom. And that comes right from James 1, verse 5. Do you realize how powerful a promise James 1, 5 is? It says, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach. It's a promise that if you lack wisdom, you ask God, and what does He do? He's going to give it to you. But James 1.5 is different than God magically providing us direction. James 1.5 does not say that God will magically appear to you in a vision and say, go to this college. I want you to take this job. That person at three tables over back there, yeah, they're going to be your spouse someday. You don't have to worry about anything else. See, those are the type of things that you want God to tell you, but that's not how wisdom works. Instead of giving us direction, God will give us wisdom through the decision-making process. Is that easy? No, it's not. But that process often makes us wiser in the long run. So the first place that we go is the Lord, and we ask Him for wisdom. The second thing that we do is we go to Scripture, and we ask, what does God's Word say about what I'm walking through, what I'm encountering? And then the third place that we go is somebody else, somebody wise. I'm convinced that one of the greatest strengths if not the greatest strength of our young adult ministry is our leaders. We have the best leaders on the planet. And it's a privilege for me to serve alongside of them. It's a group that I often go to for wisdom. I don't want you to, to neglect the wisdom that's around your table, around your small group room tonight. Because our leaders, they understand 
what it's like to live life in God's world by God's rules. <laughs> we also understand what it's like to live in my world by my rules and the consequences that follow. And we don't want you to make the same mistakes that we've made. Learn from your leaders. Let them in to what's going on in your life so that they can provide wisdom and point in the right direction. But our big idea tonight, really the big idea of the whole series, it comes from verse 7. It says this, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Again, knowledge here is a synonym of wisdom. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord. That's our big idea. You've been waiting a long time for this. I'm sorry. Thanks, Jake. The wise life begins with the right foundation, the fear of the Lord. Unfortunately, you and I use fear in a different way than, than the way the Bible uses the word fear. Fear in our culture is connected to threats. It's a, it's a negative emotion, isn't it? Fear is phobia. I'm afraid of snakes. I'm afraid of heights. I'm afraid of Fred's doing announcements with this little bag of goodies, right? <laughs> in our culture, in our context, fear equals dread, and it's generally connected to tangible consequences. Biblically, fear is a lot bigger than dread, though it certainly can encompass fear. In the Bible, fear is connected to power. Fear of the Lord is a reverential awe and a respect of God's greatness, authority, and power. The fear of the Lord is a reverential awe and respect of God's greatness, authority, and power. Consider what Jesus says in Matthew 11, verse 28, where he says this, And do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. It's kind of an intense verse, isn't it? But the principle is important. That only God has the power to both save eternally and condemn eternally. Therefore, the fear of the Lord can lead to dread, can't it? It doesn't have to, but it can. And it all depends on the status of our relationship with God. Maybe think of this illustration. I'm driving down Highway 39. Thankfully, this isn't true yet. And I come over a a crest of a hill, and right over in the median, there's a state trooper. And I see her with her little her speed gun, whatever that's called, radar gun out, and uh, I have instant respect for the power that she holds to give me a $350 ticket. That respect turns to dread when I look down at my speedometer and see that I'm going 85. Respect that reverential awe, it doesn't have to lead to dread, but it does if we're guilty. The problem is that all of us are born guilty. We've earned from our own sinful behavior eternity separated from God. God in his perfect holiness can't even tolerate sin in his presence. Ephesians 2 says that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. There's no hope for us to save ourselves naturally, we're all in that camp of, of dread. But that's not God's design. That's not what He wants for us. He sent His Son, Jesus, into the world, who lived 
in our place, who died in our place, who rose in our place, so that if we place our faith in Him, we don't have to dread punishment from the Lord. That fear must lead to faith. True fear of the Lord, that true reverential awe and respect for God's glory and His greatness must lead to faith. And if you've come tonight and you've never placed your faith in Christ, don't leave tonight without knowing that you believe that Jesus is your Lord and your Savior. Because when we're adopted into God's family, we're justified, we're declared righteous. When we're adopted into God's family, here's a fun theology word, expiation means that our guilt is removed. Jesus took our guilt on the cross and we get his righteousness. We're adopted into God's family and we don't have to dread the Lord because we're his children. Romans 8.15 says that we get to cry out to him as our Abba, as our dad. Fear must lead to faith. But even as believers, when we're adopted into God's family, there are times when we don't fear the Lord like we should. There are times when we fear other people more than we fear the Lord. At times I've called myself a people pleaser. Maybe you've used those words to describe yourself. I'm not sure. It's a soft way of saying I fear more what people think of me than what God thinks of me. Ouch. That happens in our life, doesn't it? When we fear what our boss thinks of us more than what God thinks, trying to win their approval, it might mean that someone is tempted to cut corners, take credit for work they didn't do, or even make unethical decisions just to please their supervisor. Maybe you have a higher fear of a mom or dad than you do of the Lord. You've been fighting for mom and dad's approval for decades, and they never seem to give it to you. You never seem to quite measure up, and you feel like you've continually let them down. It's tempting to care more about what they think of you than what God thinks. Maybe it's a friend. You've worked hard to win their approval, always trying to do something that'll, that'll make them happy, and you fear what they think. Or how often do we fear our own reputation or our own perception by others? Instagram culture certainly hasn't helped where we use social media to make it look like we're wealthier than we are, or we're more popular than we are, that we're even happier than we are. Their life is far more put together than it is. You see where that comes from. It's a fear of others more than a fear of the Lord. When we're driven by our reputation, our appearance, our popularity, we're more afraid of what other people think of us than what God thinks. When I think of someone who genuinely feared the Lord over other people, I think of a man named Hudson Taylor. Maybe you've heard of him before. Famous missionary to China. But his call to missions began before he could even walk. He was born in 1832 in England, and his mom, even when he was an infant, prayed that the Lord would call him to missions in China. That might not sound radical in 2024. In 1832, China was a closed country. You couldn't even get in. Talk about a, a visionary prayer by a mom. And as a dad of two young kids, it's hard to even imagine praying that bold of a prayer for your kids. Praying that they accept Jesus someday is one thing. Praying that God calls them thousands of miles away to another country and you might never see him again, that's bold. 
but the Lord answered the prayer of that faithful mom. And as a 21-year-old, inexperienced, wide-eyed missionary, Hudson Taylor got on a boat in Liverpool, England, and sailed all the way to Shanghai to serve the Lord. And he got there, and he wasn't quite vibing with the other missionaries. He realized they lived a little too comfortably, a little too opulently. They were a little too close with the diplomats and the businessmen that they were translating for. But the real downfall of their ministry was something that missiologists call colonialism. That when a Chinese person came to Christ, they also had to leave behind their culture and dress like a Westerner and act like a Westerner and talk like a Westerner. And it was detrimental to their ministry. It was actually detrimental to the gospel. And Hudson Taylor feared the Lord more than his peers. They weren't even his peers. They were the seasoned missionaries. And he decided that he was going to live like a Chinese man. He wore his hair in a pigtail like the rest of the Chinese men. He dressed like a Chinese man. He lived among the people. And even when his support dried up, he decided to stay in China and work and support himself. And as he continued to faithfully serve the Lord, he continued to do things that were radical. Years later, he made the decision to send single women into the interior in China as missionaries. It was radical. His contemporaries balked at the idea. But he feared the Lord, not his peers. And if you know anything about what God's done in China in the last 150 years, there are 100 million believers in China today. The gospel is exploding. Now, is that all thanks to Hudson Taylor? No, that's the Lord. But the Lord used Hudson to lay a foundation in China, light a torch that's been burning for over a century and a half. Because he feared God and he loved people. Now that is a recipe for the wise life, living life in God's world by God's rules. Let's pray. Father, we don't want to just seek after knowledge, but we want to seek after wisdom, living life in your world by your rules, which ultimately means that we can't be the king, the queens of our own life. So we submit ourselves to you. We give the authority, the reins to you. We want to follow your leadership and your direction. So as we dive into Proverbs together over the next couple of months, may this be a, a fruitful study for us individually, for our small groups, for our young adult family, as we dive in together to learn living life uh, your way. So guide our time tonight. It is so good to be back together. In Jesus' name, amen.